0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at bite.com. That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I mean, come on, no one plans to get sick, and yet, here we are. My name is Matthew Zachary. I survived cancer, a stroke, and COVID-19, and I'm still here I also survived our broken healthcare system, and I want to help you survive it too. So let's go make healthcare suck less together, because we're all out of patience. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the show. A quick reminder before we get started, if you like the program, I hope you do and you're on Apple Podcasts, please consider leaving me a rating, a review, something nice, maybe. On the show today, Dr. Corey Painter was given six months to live at the age of 36 when diagnosed with primary breast angiosarcoma. That was 11 years ago. As the founder of the nonprofit Angiosarcoma Awareness and the Associate Director of Operations and Scientific Outreach at the Broad Institute, She now dedicates her life to cancer advocacy and research by engaging with the metastatic breast and angiosarcoma communities on groundbreaking genomic initiatives. This is a hell of a story, folks, with a 140-year-old Easter egg buried therein. Have a listen. Enjoy the show. Corey Painter, long time coming. Thanks for coming on Out of Patience. I think we should just first start by asking the question, what happens when two long-term cancer survivors with chemo brain intersect? Is there a sort of a vortex of chemo brain that negates or augments all the things we can't do anymore?
1: Oh, I definitely think that we are going to be like perfectly matched sine waves here.
0: I'm sorry, your name again?
1: Cory Painter.
0: <laughs> where am I? Cory Painter. Uh, and who
1: am I talking with again? I'm I, sorry. This
0: who is, is this? This <laughs> is this is a Wendy's lady. I'm sorry.
1: Oh, I did want the Big Mac from the Wendy's. Is that where I go?
0: Oh, uh, you know what? I'm gonna go with not Big Mac at Wendy's. Anyway.
1: <laughs>
0: we're gonna just keep this party started. I did wanna actually begin with a funny the contest you don't want to win. So you were diagnosed at 36, you had a very rare form of breast cancer, and you were only one of 300 people in the world. Yes, I read that. I did my data check. But me, <laughs> haha, I was only one of 200 in the world. Take that. What do you think about that contest? Oh, I have
1: no, I, I can't even imagine what that would be like.
0: I know, just a 100 people difference, right? <laughs> However, we were both given six months to live, so there's that too. How did that feel for you?
1: It was... As dark as it sounds, I think, to anybody listening to this, it was um, like staring off of a a cliff at your own demise, and it was absolutely awful, and I don't know. It's been almost 11 years now, and I cannot shake the feeling of dread from those early moments in in this crazy uh, journey of mine.
0: Yeah, and I was a college kid. I was a pup at 21. You were in your mid thirties with young kids, that's a whole other like, why is young adult cancer different? I'm like, is it because of that?
1: Yeah, it is. And it's, it's hard, you know, young adult cancer spans such very different ages and different, you're just at different points, different life experiences. And I mean, looking back on my own life, if I had been diagnosed in my twenties, it would have been a very different experience than in my thirties. And you're just faced with different problems and, None of them are good. <laughs> the problems you face in your 20s aren't good. And the problems you face in your 30s aren't good. The problems you face time you're diagnosed, whether you're young or old or bad, it's just the young adult cancers have unique issues that are associated. And having little little kids, two and four years old, look at you and look at your scars and you know, do little innocent things like want you to read a book about you know, a mom that comes home at the end of the day, every single day, and you know you may not. Is pretty
0: devastating. Well, we used to quote joke end quote at stupid cancer that it's kind of hard enough just being in your twenties and thirties in normal everyday life. You got enough shit to deal with, and lop this on top of it. Eleven years ago, the young adult cancer movement was just, I think, maybe getting its formal come up. And I remember it starting with Livestrong in the early two thousands, and this little incubation tribe of folks. You know, People I've interviewed on the show, best friends of mine for 16 years, and I won't say you lucked out, but you kind of got into it at a moment where it was finally starting to get attention, and yet you were still treated as if you weren't a young adult. Did they even care that you were little kids? Was there empathy? I mean, I was just reading like it was the indignities is a word that was used in in an interview uh, you gave.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. I you know I think anybody that I've crossed paths with has had they've had empathy but what they haven't had is relatability and I think that leads to some serious issues I you know I'll start with saying I love my medical team but I've had people along the way that have been unable to handle the situation and the scenario in a way that made me feel even slightly human and I, I'm, I'm happy to elaborate but there were times that I, I would look for some glimmer of hope in the eyes of the people that knew a lot more than me. And instead I saw fear and I saw sadness and I saw them turn away from me completely. And that was uh pretty devastating.
0: What's interesting to point out. And I, I mentioned that I think that the, the general euphemism that I use is that when you enter the shit happens cancer store, there's no one to greet you. However, if you happen to be a cancer researcher or a doctor or in the medical space at all, and then you get cancer, is there any semblance of unfair advantage because you're a little more aware? You had your PhD, you were a biochemist, you were working in health, and this, this happened to you. Was it just as shitty? Could it have been more shitty? Or did you have enough, I guess, sense of profession in industry to have a, a consciousness about what's in store for you?
1: Such a good question, and I can answer it a couple different ways. I could say, absolutely, I had such an advantage. And I I took advantage of every single aspect of whatever advantage and privilege I had. One of the first things that I did after I was definitively diagnosed, because it took several months for them to even figure out what was going on, was go to the head of the cancer program at the institute where I was about to get my PhD and say, what exactly do I do next and who exactly do I talk to? And this man um, knew the person that was the top of the field. And he said, you need to talk to this person, you need to go to this hospital, and I will make the connection for you. By the time I walked from his lab to my lab, there were four or five email exchanges back and forth between this man, this doctor, and the person he was trying to put me in touch with down at Memorial Sloan Kettering. And everything was basically already set up. If if I did not have the connections that I had at that moment in my life, I would have no idea what to do I wouldn't know where to turn I there's no buddy that has it so how do you even find out who the experts are or who the people are that have ever treated it or even that you need to go to an expert all of those things would have they they would have never even entered my consciousness so in in the very practical sense, I was unbelievably set up to take advantage of whatever information there was, even if it was almost nothing. And then the flip side of that was that knowing what I did know made it one of the most devastating things that, you know, having this knowledge and having the experiences and being able to understand the scientific literature made me hyper aware from the outset that this is something that is truly awful, that there's no research on it, that even if I was to make a huge pot of money and give it to a researcher, they wouldn't likely not be able to do anything with it because there's so few of us to study. And I would say that if you weigh the two, the, um, the latter, the knowing too much and not having the state of ignorance is bliss made me have quite a hard road to hoe and it was basically trying to pick myself up out of an existential crisis for the first full year.
0: I mean, it's an extraordinary, like uh, 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 catch twenty-two that you were going through. You know, uh, having the wisdom, and then <laughs> then the wisdom kind of like it works against you. Wisdom
1: smacked me in my face.
0: I know. <laughs> it's like it's bizarre. I this is this is not apples to apples, but one of my dear friends. Uh, who was also a brain cancer survivor. His mom had multiple myeloma, but he works in in bio and and diagnostics. So he brought his mom to to the treatment, and he was the one questioning the doctor. He knew more about what she was in store for than she could understand, and he knew it was going to be horrible. So he actually withheld information from her on purpose to make her feel a little more confident. She's fine now but he was the young caregiver that had all the information where his wisdom backfired on him in a way that made him worry so much more about his mom i got to say like this idea of like the researcher the cancer professional the healthcare they the, they get cancer and then they experience it from the other side what would you say yeah. as the customer of cancer instead of the yeah. doctor in science was the worst Thing anyone told you along the way?
1: That one's pretty easy. There was an experience I had early on with, and I have, I've, I have a very extensive medical team that spans multiple institutions. And one of the first uh, experiences that I had was getting a biopsy. And when you stick a needle into a blood vessel tumor, because that's what angiosarcoma is, it's a proliferation of the inner lining of your blood vessels, the endothelial cells. And so it makes a big blood vessel tumor, and it fills with blood. And when they were trying to figure out what was going on with me, the doctor had suspicions, though he didn't say anything to me. And he laid me down on a table, and I could tell he was nervous. And he had his nurse standing over me, and he was a little bit short with her because I think he was nervous. And he gave me a core needle biopsy, which is a thick needle that they put into the tumor. And when he punctured the tumor, it bled like a geyser.
0: Oh, man. And
1: it just, there was blood that was just running down my body and pulling underneath my back and dripping off the table. And he was trying to get the sample that he had taken from the, the biopsy into the, to the um, cup that she was holding, and her hand was just shaking over me. And I was just like processing this in real time, like, oh, my God, because I had seen the syringe in a previous fine needle aspiration filled with blood. I had gone home. I Google searched blood and breast tumor and came up with angiosarcoma. And when I saw this go down, I knew that that's what it was. The only other things after I found out what angios, what the name angiosarcoma meant was just how dismal the prognosis was, how unlikely I would be to survive and how gruesome the death can be. I mean, it's just awful. It's like a hemorrhagic, I won't go into the details here, but suffice it to say, you might not want to Google search what it looks like because it's awful and scary and horrific. And so there I was processing, and I'm naked, you know, and I'm just like looking. It's by far the most vulnerable moment of my life. And I look up at the doctor and I say to him, I said, I can't have angiosarcoma. My kids are two and four. And he turned away. He couldn't even make eye contact with me. So he broke eye contact and he just literally went into the corner of the room and stared at the wall. And he said, there will be somebody else there to raise.
0: Oh my God. Yeah. That might top the list of things I've heard. And I've heard some pretty crazy shit. It was so
1: awful. And I was still bleeding on the table naked. It was just awful. You know, it's, I I just cannot believe that. I mean, I was just, it was really bad.
0: My. Wow. Okay. So, Let's not name that guy but let's just say that he's a real <laughs> piece all, of shit. I have,
1: I have like a very big extensive team and not, I can guarantee you that none of the people that anybody knows I'm associated with were that none of them were that person. <laughs> Notice <laughs> I, I said that guy
0: cuz there's no way yeah. that would have been a female doctor that did that to you. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm like I'm stunned. I don't know how to react to that. I mean, the closest I've got—it's I know, got,
1: it's, it's every bit as awful as you can think. It's so bad.
0: Yeah, I mean, the closest it's I good. got as a quick reference is my friend uh, was diagnosed with stage four breast cancer and had a little boy at the time, and she was concerned about her fertility. And the doctor said, "Why do you care? You already got one." Oof, that's rough. <laughs> really, and there was that a guy like, yeah, that's not okay. That's really not okay. I guess what I really wanted to—I mean. Again, yeah, this goes back to like, what, so what did you do to cause your breast cancer? Cause I don't know what I did to cause yeah. my brain cancer. Did you get any of that?
1: I did not. Um, actually I didn't get any of that. And, and oddly enough, if ever there should be somebody who thinks that they cause their own cancer, it's me because I, I mean, I, And as a graduate student, the stuff that I was exposed to in my lab, doing the type of work I was, every single bottle I held had a big um, skull and crossbones on it. Oh God! Oh man! And so, you know, and and not to mention, I I was not the picture of health going into grad school. I mean, I looked physically healthy, but I, you know, I was young and free for a long time. I will not expand on what that means, but you can leave it to your own imagination. And I smoked cigarettes, and you know, I did all kinds of things that you shouldn't do if you want to avoid cancer in your life, and then went and got a, you know, PhD doing very unhealthy work. (laughs) And so I, I actually do think that perhaps I was exposed to something. And I have all kinds of other crazy hypotheses. Again, this is where the knowing a lot about science may not be to your benefit, because I have entire pathways signaling pathways that i pretty sure that i turned on as a result of intensive exercise after quitting smoking and i don't think i would have all of that like jogging through my brain literally if it wasn't for the um just endless literature that i've had to read over the years there's that
0: back with our guest after the break
1: Find Love at First Drive and start shopping now at Carmax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be.
0: So Corey, I want to pick up on the so you started a non-profit. Because I started a non-profit and I'm all about, do people really know what they're in for when they start one? And probably not. But you went ahead and started no. something very, very important and still highly relevant today. Angiosarcoma Awareness Incorporated, a nonprofit devoted to fostering a collaborative atmosphere between researchers and then lots of words after that. Tell us about it.
1: That's right. Yes. Yeah. So when I was diagnosed, I really felt strongly that even if I wasn't gonna live, that maybe in whatever time I had, I would be able to start something that would lead to a different state for somebody else with angiosarcoma. Part of the reason that I was so distraught, once I realized that there's nothing I can do, right? There's nothing I can do to stay here to raise my babies. There's nothing I can do to stay here for my family or my husband. I can't do anything there, but maybe I could do something for another person down the road, and it wouldn't be as awful for them. And so I was pretty determined to try and fund some research, but I had a very realistic understanding of what that actually meant. And so I didn't really get my hopes up too high. Step one was to find somebody else that could help me with this because there's, I'm I'm a scientist, I don't know anything about business. And honestly, it never even occurred to me to to start a foundation. I was just going to raise some money and and give it to a researcher. But lo and behold, I met this woman in the place in the whole wide world where I could find another angiosarcoma patient, which was in an online social media support group. And it was started by this woman, Lauren Ryan. And Lauren was a stay-at-home mom, and she was just minding her business and one day also got smacked in the face with angiosarcoma. And she just was, she, she just had so much gumption. She was not going to take it laying down. She, you know, in our community, we use a lot of the, the war and the fight. um,
0: Oh, I hate that.
1: Vernacular, which is very not okay in other cancer communities, but this is how we roll in, in our small little part of the cancer space. And so she was a fighter, right?
0: I'm a fan of choose your own metaphor.
1: Yeah. And, and that's, and, and part of me is, I want to honor her always because this is how she talked about her experience, you know, and she was, she was a fighter and she was just not going to take it laying down and she was going to start a nonprofit. So she looked up how to do that and she found friends who would help her that had uh, experience with being a CPA and stuff like that. And when I met her and she found out I was a scientist, you know, we just instantly recognized the potential there that she could take care of all the business stuff, I could do all of the science stuff, and together we could have this nonprofit and really try to help people down the road. So her vision was that we would raise a1,000 dollars and we would give it to one like a common cancer charity, and that they would go and figure out how to cure angiosarcoma. And I looked at her and I said, "I don't want to break your heart or anything, but that won't do anything. That won't even buy a box of pens. Uh, for somebody to write down a better idea. And
0: <laughs> Wow, I that. Like and I that. was pretty
1: blunt with her on it and, and
0: Bravo. And, and
1: it really did break her heart. But at the same time, I we had to face reality here. And I told her, I was like, you know, we, we can't even really entice a researcher to add part of somebody's time to a project for less than twenty five thousand dollars. It's just not it's just not in the interest of the scientist the way that Science money is like monopoly money. They just won't really be able to do anything and dedicate any real time for that. And and even that is just a fraction of somebody's percent effort. So basically, we need to spend a lot of time and we need to try to raise 25 grand. And then we need to see, we need to very smartly put that somewhere where somebody already basically has momentum going in the direction of research that may benefit angiosarcoma patients. And then use this as an enticement to go further and or to collaborate with somebody else or bring somebody else into the space.
0: So we're living in an era of fancy words like biomarkers and genomics and many syllable things that most people don't understand. But have you found through the research you funded or are working on, and we're going to get to the Broad Institute uh, in a moment, are there biomarkers or genetic similarities for angiosarcoma with other cancers where there's a combined way to do research for multiple tumor types?
1: That is a really great question. And I'm going to say yes and no. <laughs> and it'll make sense. that The answer will make sense after I tell you a little bit about the research. But, But that very hope that you just put out there, the hope that maybe angiosarcoma could be similar to another cancer was planted in my brain early before i even got my phd after my diagnosis and it led to the it really was like a pivot moment in my career path and in my scientific research and if you if you want i can tell you a little bit of the details it's actually a really cool story
0: sure go right ahead
1: So when I was diagnosed, I was all over the internet, again, trying to find people, trying to find information. And I stumbled on this online listserv called ACOR, Association for Cancer Online Resources. And and through that, I found a group of sarcoma patients. One of the sarcoma patients there was a postdoc at Stanford. She had synovial sarcoma and her husband was an engineer. And they basically sifted through every piece of information that had ever been written on or about sarcoma patients. And one of the things that they landed on in the bowels of the library at Stanford were these notes from a doctor taken in Memorial Sloan Kettering in New York City in the late 1800s. 1800s. This doctor, mm-hmm, William Coley, noticed that some of his sarcoma patients would have their tumors spontaneously regressed after they would have high fevers. And he made this connection between fevers and regression of tumors and decided he was gonna try to induce tumors in his sarcoma patients. So he took these very virulent bacteria and he killed the bacteria, but the part that gives you the fever, the outside part of the bacteria, he kept that and he basically injected it into the patients, either into their blood or directly into the tumor. And then he took fastidious notes on what the reaction was. So over the course of about 10 years, he ended up doing this to five angiosarcoma patients and they were they had advanced disease. Four of them, according to this doctor's notes, went to have complete and durable remission, and it was incredible because the type of thing he was doing was reminiscent to what doctors were doing for melanoma, which was using um, IL-2 and other ways to manipulate the immune system, and it was one of the first. Hints that maybe you could use immunotherapy to have regression of melanoma tumors. So knowing that I could not study angiosarcoma because there's not enough people to get funding, nobody would ever give you funding for it. I thought the next best thing I could do was study melanoma because of that similarity that you kind of hinted at. And if I could, at some point, if I was a good research scientist and I published my papers and I got my grants, maybe I could sneak in an angiosarcoma paper if I lived long enough, you know, and so that was my kind of career path. That was my ambition. And I'm going to fast forward now, six years from that moment that I made that decision, and tell you that I started a project in angiosarcoma that led to a discovery that completely validated what that doctor wrote about in the 1800s. So it's pretty cool. It all came full full
0: circle. That is incredible. And here we are 140 years later, and I still don't know what side of the car the gas tank's on.
1: I know. I don't either. That's the funny
0: thing. So let's get into what the time we have left, uh, your work at the Broad Institute, uh, the joincountmein.org, and maybe a note about the Metastatic Breast Cancer Project. That's a lot. We've got a few minutes, but where do you want to start?
1: Sure. Well, first, it's the Broad Institute.
0: Broad? You learn something every day. (laughs)
1: OK, so once I did this, this postdoc, I wanted to do something that would enable me to do something completely different that could hopefully help people with all cancers, that could hopefully enable research to happen at a much faster pace than it did. I thought that maybe there's some really unsexy infrastructure that could be built and leveraged by a lot of people to include people with common cancers and people with rare cancers like mine. And the Broad Institute was looking for somebody to do exactly that. And they wanted somebody to be able to talk with cancer patients and that understood the nonprofit space. And they were looking for this person to come and build a project in metastatic breast cancer. And I, I joined in 2015. We launched this project, it's a genomics project. And this, the whole point of this is to work directly with patients in order to build a website that would be resonant within their community. So that anybody with metastatic breast cancer anywhere in the country or in Canada could join from the comfort of their phone or their computer and have the option to participate in research. So we launched this in 2015. And as of today, we have over 6,000 people that have joined. Wow. And it's the largest registry of metastatic breast cancer patients that exists. And we have all kinds of data. Um, Some of it is through patient surveys where we learn about their experiences. Some of it is from their medical records which we abstract and some is from the tumor and their normal DNA that we run genomic analysis on. And we take all of the data, we strip it from anything that would identify the patient and then we just share it freely with the biomedical community. Anybody right now can go to their phone and and, and look at this data, you can download it. You just have to go to mbcproject.org and go to the data tab. And the hope is that people would, you know, scientists would take this data and make discoveries. That was the hope. And so we launched this in 2015. And as of today, there are well over 30 peer-reviewed papers that have made discoveries based off of this data. And the amount of people that are making more and more discoveries grows every day. So the proof of concept really was vetted out. You know, patients were so excited and happy to be able to participate, kind of in that same way that I was when I knew I was going to die, or I thought I was at least. You know, I knew I couldn't do anything about it, but you have to have some sense of control over something. And this was a way that, you know, patients could leave a legacy or patients that, you know, would be able to try and use their awful, terrible experience so that somebody else didn't have to. And um, they would spread word about it in social media. They would post about being able to participate and they would post the project URL. So, you know, as a result of that success, We did the same thing in my cancer, angiosarcoma, and we were equally as successful. You know, everybody joined, and we made discoveries, and we published them in um, Nature Medicine, which is a top-tier journal on that discovery that I talked about earlier, and we um, told all the doctors about it, and they made clinical trials, and the clinical trials worked, and so now angiosarcoma patients are actually being treated differently um, as a result of this work.
0: I don't suppose you've gone back to your doctor and told him you're still here and then hit him with a brick.
1: (laughs) not that doctor but my current doctor and my surgeon are both co-authors on the discovery paper with me so they went from my care team to my collaborators and they still treat me and they still collaborate with me so it's a it's a really interesting dynamic there
0: and your kids are well
1: my kids are well yes
0: they get heavier don't they
1: they do. And um, luckily,
0: I have a strong husband to, to carry them. <laughs> That's awesome. Man, without going yeah. all cat poster on you, this is truly making lemonade from lemons. Sorry, I had to do it, kids. Dad joke. Whatever the cat... <laughs> But Dr. Corey Painter is the Associate Director of Operations and Scientific Outreach for the Broad Institute. I did say that correctly. The Associate Director of Count Me In at joincountmein.org and the Metastatic Breast Cancer Project online at mbcproject.org. And for the cheap seats in the back, a brand new initiative that's in my wheelhouse, Brain Cancer, you can go to the thebraincancerproject.org. Corey, thanks again for coming on the show.
1: Thanks so much for having me. That's all for today, folks. If you like today's show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is a product of Offscript Media. Our executive producer is Matthew Zachary. Our senior producers are Brianna Seeley, Jen Orangia, and Andrew McDowell. It is mixed and edited by Brianna Seeley. Our theme music is by the Mike Van Allen Quintet and by Mara. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. Hit us up at contact at offscript.com to share
0: comments, feedback, and make recommendations. For more information, visit offscript.com.